Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to being a renewable energy partner for New England and working to fight climate change. Learn more at sunbugsolar.com. And the Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. The Unclaimed Property Division is holding unclaimed funds from medical bills, uncashed paychecks, savings accounts, and more. To see if you have unclaimed money, you can visit findmassmoney.gov. WGBH HD1 Boston, online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie and Jim Browdy. Vaccinating children may have become a new front in the fight against coronavirus, one that could help accelerate the school reopening process. Joining us online to talk about this and other education headlines is Paul Revel. Paul is the former Secretary of Education for the state, professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book, co-authored with Elaine Weiss, is Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Students Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. Good afternoon, Paul Revel. Good to talk to you. Good afternoon, Jim and Marjorie. Good to be with you. Yeah, great to talk great. to you too, Paul Revel. So this new uh, infrastructure plan that the President Biden has proposed is talking about $100 billion uh, for school construction around the country. Uh, Boston schools are getting more than $400 million in uh, stimulus money. Um, what's this going to mean? Uh, we, we have endless stories. Well, I mean, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's going to be an enormous windfall for the school system. I mean, in, in just the relief funds alone, there's about 400 or more than 400 million coming our way um, sooner or later. It's going to mean an intensive period of, uh, first of all, competition for how to spend that money. So I think we're going to have a lot of politics enter into it as uh, different people have different ideas. And I mean politics in a positive sense. Uh, you know, different people have different ideas about what the priorities ought to be. Uh, I was glad to see the superintendent came out with a list of priorities that she had and a recent uh, set of statements that she's been making about where we're headed. Uh, I think there are going to have to be some decisions made, um, you know, and this will uh, be affected by who's mayor and what the mayor's priorities are relative to short and long term expenses and uh, relative to expenses for uh, that uh, go to children as opposed to expenses that go to adults. So there are going to be a lot of um, challenging decisions to be made um, with respect to, uh, you know, how much is spent in the near term, how much is spent in the long term and so forth. So it's uh, but it's a nice opportunity for the city. And I hope we can make the most of it. Well, you know, let's expand beyond the city. I don't know if Marjorie mentioned this number. My apologies. But apparently out of the the American Relief Act, is that what it's called? The thing that passed already, the Rescue Act, I'm yep. sorry. Yep. $1.8 billion to elementary and secondary school emergency relief. You know, it's sort of like we just got a phone Bill McKibben about, you know, this is like the last best chance. I can't imagine a larger one-time influx of cash to the public school system of Massachusetts. And by the way, it's a ton of money for non-public schools too, 27 million, that sort of thing. That's right. It seems to That's me right. this this is a huge and important moment not to make a mistake. And so how does who decides? I mean, is this like we get the 1.8 billion, there's a formula, I don't know, established by the state to decide how much every community has and then it's every one of the 351 cities and towns on their own or their priorities set by the state who decides whether this is just to plug the holes that were created from this nightmare year 
Uh, it's to reshape the future. I mean, this is a huge moment. Who who makes the decisions here? Well, uh, first of all, the, the legislature has decided some of it. So that, that money is apportioned in the statutory language in certain ways. And some of it mm-hmm. goes for, um, you know, COVID relief expenses. Some of it goes for... Uh, you know, other kinds of curriculum development, professional development, summer learning, things of that nature. So there's certain specifications in the legislation. Then the bill goes to um, to the regulatory phase of, of implementation where the U.S. Department of Education is going to be, uh, uh, you know, writing up some guidelines that govern how the money can be spent that they'll then pass along to states. States will have the prerogative to uh, put some of their own guidelines on this and then send this down to the local level. And then in local communities, depending on the jurisdiction, it will either go directly to the school committee or um, some of it may go through the city budget, although I think most of it's gonna come directly to the uh, uh, school governance structure, which in our case is school committees, and they'll have to make decisions. So we don't know the answer to that question really as yet, Jim, but uh, I think we we can assume that the spirit of this is to allow a lot of local flexibility to name your own priorities and make your investments accordingly. Uh, but these are hard decisions, as you know, to make because there are a lot of different opinions on on what ought to be first. I mean, uh, you know, for example, Superintendent Boston has said, you know, a top priority for her is early childhood education. Well, uh, in another community, it might be mental health services. She's going to try and address that too in, in her budget. Uh, so there are different people will come at that in different ways. And, uh, you know, we have a new mayor in Boston. We have a mayoral election coming up. Um, you know, and the state has different sets of priorities in terms right. of how they want to spend and what the state role is going to be. So there's going to be a bit of a, a scramble. Um, you know, other people might call it a feeding frenzy that's going to go on here. And it's important that uh, leaders govern and guide this process and, uh, you know, allow for people to express a wide range of views, but then we have to come to some resolution. And as you put it, uh, we've got to spend wisely. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Marjorie said to me off the air she'd never repeat this on air, but I'm an outer. She said she thought we should just write a check, the $1.8 billion, to the teachers' union and let them do whatever the hell they <laughs> decide they want to do. You know, uh, Paul we'll Rebel, when I, intru- in a minute. <laughs> when I introduced you a minute ago, we talked about, uh, I mentioned this vaccination thing. We obviously read the Pfizer thing yesterday where... Yeah. Uh, they had very, they had extraordinary good results in 12 to 15 year yeah. olds. Uh, Moderna's testing 12 to 17 year olds or doing clinical trials. Uh, Superintendent Caselius in Boston brought this issue of vaccinating kids up with the Secretary of Education when he was visiting the other day, and apparently he didn't respond. But she made the point. What worries me, and now I really am channeling Marjorie again. I think well, it worries me too. Well, it's going to be the well, next I'd love goal to post see move. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I'd love to see these kids vaccinated. My fear is it is, as Marjorie just said, another goalpost move as we get closer and closer. And then a la, you know, uh, peanuts, whatever, uh, when the football was moved, uh, this becomes yet another thing. Are you worried about that or, or no? You mean a, a, a goalpost in the sense of it? It becomes an obstacle. I to mean, opening right, schools. We can't go back to school yeah, until, until the, the, the kids yeah. themselves are vaccinated. Right. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be some voices in that regard, but I increasingly momentum is building toward, uh, you know, supporting the opening, even here in in, uh, in Massachusetts, where the, the uh, you know, the commissioner has uh, insisted the Board of Education is basically forcing schools to come back, uh, although they've made some waivers. They recently was a public poll and 
showed a majority of parents in favor of that. And, uh, I, you know, I think given the science that's coming up, I mean, the uh, I, I just saw some data on the testing that's happening. You know, they're doing pool testing in Massachusetts and a fair number of schools, you know, being tested on a regular basis in a very, very low rate. I mean, 0.7, I think, is... Um, yeah, it was under happening. one. So increasingly, yeah. we've got evidence that this is safe. That uh, uh, first of all, the, um, the the rate of transmission is low among the kids coming to school, and secondly, um, the precautions that can be taken. I mean, the the spacing, the mask, the what the schools have already done to increase their ventilation, the regular testing. Uh, now the provisions that have been made for uh, teachers to get vaccinated, so so many teachers are going to be vaccinated. Uh, I, I think all the momentum is building in the direction toward bringing people back. So I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I have no doubt that those voices will be raised and the perfect will be held up and ultimately become the enemy of the good. But I think most people are going to say, you know, it's just overwhelmingly a good thing for their education, mm-hmm. for their mental health, for community viability for the parents to be able to go to work to have children come back and it's not it's going to be messy it's not going to be the same thing for everybody all at once but it's going to happen gradually through this spring it's why i'm delighted massachusetts took a strong stand because you know other places might have been inclined to write off the spring and they're saying no we got to do the hard work of bringing people Mm -hmm. back this spring in particular so we're ready to go in the fall and we make best use of summer because you know, um, kids need to be sort of drawn back in here. We, we need to reconnect our children and, and get the relationships among peers and with adults uh, rebuilt. We need to, you know, uh, heighten their sense of motivation, give them inspiration and hope, welcome them back, and then start to treat some of the trauma and the learning loss that people have had over this period of time. There's a lot of work to be done. And we just can't wait any longer, and there are enough signals that we ought to be moving ahead. You know, Paul Revel, I sometimes feel bad because uh, Jim and I fight a lot, not about the teachers, but about the teachers' unions. I didn't want you to be stuck between the Bickersons here in you know this latest <laughs> round. So I wasn't I wasn't going to re- reference Roger Lewinstein's piece in the Boston Globe, the headline of which said, Democrats should stop their lockstep support of teachers' unions. I wasn't going to oh, mention— Oh, you weren't going to bring that up. I That's wasn't going to mention <laughs> that, uh, that the New York Times said Democrats have presided over one of the worst blows to the education of disadvantaged Americans in the history of the country, or that you know that unions have played an unconscionable role in keeping schools closed, or that you know you can compare teachers unions to police unions because neither of them go after the bad apples in the in the group that we always hear about how so few of them there are. Thank the, God you weren't going to mention. And I wasn't going to mention way. that, that really you know, despite good. these schools being closed, parochial schools in Boston, as Lowenstein points out, and elsewhere have continued, you know. F- in-person teaching without becoming COVID-19 spreaders, but I couldn't help myself, obviously. So I just wondered what you thought of uh, Roger Lowenstein's well, piece in the Boston Globe. Be careful, my friend. Go ahead. And it's and he's right. Well, it's the Democrats I, it's, he's blaming. And he, he's, he, is. he is blaming, and he is correct I, I, I in my estimation. You. I hear you. Well, the first thing I thought when I saw the article, Marjorie, was you'd be unable to resist. It. And, uh, <laughs> exactly. So I, 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 I was I was right on that score, um, and uh, but I didn't expect such a magnificent peroration on that. On that There's an opener here. So it's okay. I do what lot, I can. You covered a lot of ground, but I you know number one thing I'd say is 
you know, I think it's a fair indictment at one level. I've worried for a long time that, uh, you know, because teachers are very active politically and more power to them, they should be. They have interests, but they're a very powerful force within the Democratic Party uh, that they have been overly influential in the party's uh, agenda with respect to education over the years. And it made the Democratic Party, I think, more conservative, as in the sense of preserving the status quo. Uh, than they should have been over the years on, on matters of education policy. Now, having said that, <clears throat> the new administration, I think, is showing some independence. So, uh, you know, the, the Biden administration has come out four square for reopening schools and reopening schools as soon as possible. The unions have not been in that camp. I mean, the unions have been very cautious about uh, when to reopen schools and, as you say, have put up a number of goalposts. On the matter of testing, the unions are strongly anti-testing. Many of them, particularly here in Massachusetts, uh, see this uh, pandemic as a great opportunity to eliminate accountability altogether. Uh, and uh, they've never liked the tests, and they'd like to see them go away. And, uh, and Well, can uh, I interrupt that one? I just want to say, I was trying to stay out of this, but I, they would argue that they're not against accountability. They're against the standardized tests as the 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 primary measure, if that's a word, of accountability, they think there are better ways. But go ahead. But they go want ahead, to get rid of the cool. test. Well, that's right, the bottom line. Not, they do. They, yeah. But they're now talking about the elimination of that test altogether. I mean, that's what they want to see. Happen. I know. Exactly. I agree. When you talk with thoughtful union leaders, you talk to a Jessica Tang or somebody like that. It's not that they're opposed to testing. It's not that they're opposed to accountability. Uh, they, they, they'd they like it to be done in a different fashion. But the more extreme voices are saying, let's get rid of MCAS altogether. And the notion, at any rate, the federal government and the Biden administration and the current uh, secretary um, are, have been in favor of continuing to do the testing. They're willing to have uh, states uh, abandon any consequences associated with that testing, which I think is a wise idea in the near term, this year, next year. I don't but they explicitly, the feds, the Biden administration is specifically the education department, <clears throat> not given permission to states to dump the test. You Good can push them back, but not dump them, correct? Them. That's right. That's what I'm saying. So I think yeah. that's evidence yeah. to the contrary of the thesis in the Lowenstein article is that the Biden administration is showing some independence. But I, I do think it's a, a, a worry within the Democratic Party. For example, the Democratic Party's position on charter schools has been overwhelmingly influenced by the teachers' union perspective on charter schools. There's just no question about it. Uh, and so I, I think he makes a good point. There ought to be, uh, uh, within democratic circles, a more open conversation about education policy and about where we need to go to meet the needs of children in the 21st century. Uh, but I'm somewhat hopeful by what I've seen so far in the Biden administration. Yeah, By the way, on the charter school issue, we know, too, that the people spoke here, too, not just the unions. Yes, and because the, by almost because the, margin the issue was badly lied about. It was very much misrepresented. To the so you don't think the people are smart enough to have made an informed decision? I think that there were so many lies on television, just like the Catholic Church lied about the assisted suicide, Jim. There were lies on mm. television that had my neighbors in Brookline think that we were going to be overrun by charter schools in Brookline. That wasn't I the point. I think people are smarter than that. Oh, okay, so, uh, Paul Revel, in, in the last few minutes, I have to say there are very few education reform issues that I have thought about before most of the reformers did. I would have to say the one exception. When I was going to college in Philadelphia 400 years ago, 
and <laughs> in West Philadelphia, and there were some public schools that were atrocious. Even I, who knew nothing about education then, sort of like now, thought, why isn't Penn getting involved in helping to, I wouldn't say run, but rescue some public schools? It's got the resources, immense amount of resources. It, you know, it has experts, people like you in their education hierarchy. Well, fast forward decades, Penn is doing it, Clark is doing it in Worcester. Yeah. In the last few minutes, yeah. why aren't colleges other more intimately involved? I know Harvard's doing something with this education portal, but why aren't colleges, particularly in urban areas, more intimately involved in the rescue of uh, public schools? Well, I, I, I think the... Um... You know, the article overemphasizes a focus on uh, school takeovers and universities running schools, which there have been some spectacular successes. I had a, a little bit of involvement with the, with the University Park Campus School in Worcester, and mm -hmm. it's uh, really a, a sterling model of what can happen when a university and community uh, come together for education purposes. I, I'm also familiar with the Stanford case that went down the tubes, and that, that was a problem. Uh, and I know Penn has done extraordinary work there, but it's one school and it's a one-off kind of solution. Um, the basic thesis underlying the article, I think, is misleading. How, it suggests so? that the universities and colleges aren't doing things, but there, there are myriad things that are going on at the systematic level or at a more programmatic level. For example, you know, universities like MIT was very involved in helping uh, that Boston Public Schools redesigned their school transportation plan. Now, you may have feelings one way or another about that, but they, you know, a lot of work went into that. We mm -hmm. have, uh, there's an evaluation consortium of leading researchers in the uh, universities in greater Boston who regularly do research work that uh, informs policy and practice within the Boston Public Schools. The Harvard Business School, uh, for a long time, has an organization there that helped the uh, uh, in, in sort of management evaluation assessment and strategic planning within the Boston Public Schools. And then there are literally thousands of faculty members who have different uh, activities that they engage in. I myself have a variety of different things that I do in conjunction with the public schools. My wife, who works at uh, Harvard Medical School, uh, runs a program in 20-plus Boston Public Schools to bring them into Harvard Medical School and run a simulation biosciences program, wow. for them, which is spectacular. So there are lots and lots of examples of the ways in which universities and colleges and the hospitals, for that matter, have chosen to be involved, but they aren't all about taking over a single school and trying in a one-off way to make that school work. They're more sort of systemic interventions and I think have actually more hope and possibility over the long term. You know, we're out of time here. By the way, the piece that we're talking about, we should say, if people want to read it, is David Scharfenberg in the Ideas section of the Boston Globe. Uh, with your permission, I'd like to continue this discussion yeah. next time, uh, Paul, because uh, I have a slightly different, maybe not as well informed, but a slightly different perspective on the role of uh, colleges and hospitals and major wealthy institutions. So let's continue it next time, yeah, if no, you I, will. Yeah, no, I welcome that. I mean, it's right. an important topic, and it involves pilot payments and all the rest of it. Exactly. Payment in lieu of taxes, right. Hey, we'll thank you it. very much, Paul. Thank you, Paul. All right. Thank you, guys. Good to talk. Take care. You too. Yep.
Paul Ravel joins us regularly. He's the former State Secretary of Education, a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book, co-authored with Elaine Weiss, Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Students Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. Coming up, glazed and confused. <laughs> Why is Krispy Kreme's vaccine donut giveaway getting so much backlash? Food writer Corby Cover joins us for that and more next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. It's National Poetry Month, and GBH has your way to celebrate. Join us and Mass Poetry on 